Conversations at the College, a fortnightly podcast where we delve into interesting stories from those within the St. Stephen's College community, talking to people that make the college truly diverse and connected. Now, let's get into this week's conversation. Today on Conversations at the College, we catch up with old scholar James Maskey, who's with us today to share his absolutely incredible story. Now, James, welcome to Conversations at the College. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to work with Fordham and the absolutely crucial role that they play in assisting first responders. Thanks, Rick, and uh, thank you for having me, mate. Um, Look, I am... 34 years old. I'm married to a fellow old scholar. I'm an old scholar myself and we have a beautiful two-year-old daughter. I'm a former Queensland police officer and I spent roughly about six years working in the police service in general duties policing and the child protection and investigation unit. Drug and property crime, uh, high-speed pursuits, murders, suicides, street brawls. That was my bread and butter in uniform policing. And then I transferred into that child protection unit where I was uh, responsible for investigating uh, instances of child harm, abuse and neglect. Throughout my career, I developed a mental health diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. I voluntarily separated from the police service to look after my own mental health and well-being. My wife and I made the decision to move to Melbourne. I struggled with, uh, I guess, identifying any transferable skills that I may have from the police service and translating that into corporate Australia. And eventually I landed at Beyond Blue and they had a specialised police and emergency services program. So I was their national engagement manager and we undertook in that program a world first study of mental health and wellbeing of first responders and their families, which caused me to learn about Fordham Australia. We are a uh, national not-for-profit organisation for first responders and their families, the people who protect and care for our community. And we look after their mental health and wellbeing. We have a transition and employment program. Uh, So for first responders who need to move on from their career, be it uh, early career separation like myself, be it mid-career, be it age retirement, be it medical transition, whatever the reason, we've got a fit-for-purpose case management model where we support people into new life and new career opportunities post their service. Okay. And the final thing that we do in this space is we are undertaking a pretty significant mental health literacy and stigma reduction initiative where we produce mental health resources. So that's our organisation and uh, the work that we conduct at Fordham Australia. Megan, how important is it that our first responders are actually given access to services to help you know deal with the stresses of the job? And is there a time frame where that really needs to occur in order to be the most effective? Look, it's, it's highly important that first responders are provided with that support Research demonstrates that there are a number of uh, protective things that first responders can do and that we can do for them, which includes seeking appropriate clinical support, especially in the early stages of their career. The earlier, the better from this support-seeking perspective. Okay. So that when things are, are challenging and they do experience uh, you know, some traumatic events, there are already good supports in place. They already have a toolkit read- readily available when they need that support. And when somebody receives appropriate support, it is highly uh, likely that that person can recover from challenges they experience on the job and still continue to do this really important line of work for the community for years to come. Look, from a community perspective, we want our first responders to be as well as they possibly can because then first responders can be at their best when they're putting their lives on the line for others and serving the community. And we also know that, um, you know, obviously earlier the better, but there's also a really urgent need for both internal supports in the workplace and external supports in the community. 
it's it's about a, offering a suite of services, um, and I, I I liken it to you know the old Sizzler buffet. I'm not sure if Sizzler still exists anymore as a concept, but no, uh, I did love that buffet though. <laughs> me too, mate. Me too. I mean, some people will go straight in for you know your salad bar. Some people straight into the dessert bar. Me, it was always the cheese toast that came complimentary to your table. It's the same with mental health supports. Some people will find their way into mental health and wellbeing supports through internal uh, EAP or internal peer support or internal chaplaincy services that an organisation may offer. Same too, a community organisation is really, really important because first responders uh, are sometimes quite sceptical of, uh, you know, the supports that an organisation may provide them mm. and how uh, confidential that, that support is and what impact that might, ha- that might have on their uh, career. Uh, so it's really important that we have good social connection, good clinical and good transition support out in the community as well, and that that support is encouraged to be accessed as early as possible. Now, I think as a community, we tend to expect a lot from our first responders, and sadly, only too often, I think we tend to forget that you are human as well. So how much of a toll does doing that frontline job have on somebody's mental health and well-being, and how hard is it on the uh, families as well? Uh, it's, and it's a really good question. Um, and I think from my perspective, my lived experience confirms what we already know about this sector, that this work really does come at a high emotional cost. Yeah. We, we know that first responders are readily and, and quite often repeated to death, trauma and violence in the course of their duties. We know that they have difficult interactions with the public and high expectations of the public pertaining to their occupation. And we know that there's some really strong and, and sometimes quite damaging uh, strong cultural pressures and workplace practices that also have a negative impact upon mental health. First responders, we know from research conducted, half will be exposed to a traumatic incident that deeply affects them. All will be exposed exposed to trauma on some level, but half will be deeply impacted by by that exposure. We know that uh, 10% will develop PTSD. And when somebody separates from employment, that number skyrockets to 25%. So one in four of former members will have PTSD. Oh, wow. Uh, So that's a community that I identify with as a former worker. And we know that um, families feel this too uh, through a concept called spillover stress. So families are dealing with things like lone parenting while their loved one is at work, worrying about their loved one at work, uh, feeling the pressure to keep the family unit together. Yeah. And also not to mention vicarious trauma exposure through secondary exposure. However, it's not all bad news. And this actually uh, is quite heartening to me. We know that there is a strong correlation between uh, accessing social support, either giving uh, support to others or receiving support ourselves and enhance mental health and wellbeing for first responders. So we know it's incredibly important to connect first responders to their colleagues, to their workplace, but most importantly to their community and to their friends and family outside of the workplace. We know that this has a profound impact upon their mental health and well-being. We also know that, um, and it is difficult for a first responder to get adequate levels of sleep and good have good physical health yeah. because the toll of shift work means we're all exhausted, right, at the end of the day. But first responders who practice good sleep hygiene who practice good levels of physical health and well-being, and who access timely and early supports, those are the ones who, typically speaking, are staying as well as they possibly can. And it's really important that as a community that we celebrate that and that we empower people to seek that support early. Because I guess the reality is that as a first responder, you never get called out to good things, really, do you? It's always a fire, a car accident. Um, something bad, generally speaking, is happening uh, to warrant that first response 
in the first place? Yeah, for for the most part. I completely agree for the most part. Uh, We as first responders are dealing with probably 5% of the population at their worst time and their hour of need. That's why emergency services exist, right? There are some really uh, sort of great aspects of emergency service work. There's some great community engagement uh, positions that somebody could hold in, say, the Queensland Police Service. There's the youth army at the PCYC. There's, um, you know, crime prevention and, and providing education and upskilling to the community. But before an officer gets to be in a specialised role like that, where there is that ability to give back, they typically have been exposed to trauma, death and violence for a very long period of time through their operational policing duties. Now, mate, I know the government spends a lot of time and resources, obviously, in training our frontline personnel, but do you think enough time and effort is also being spent teaching them how to deal with the after-effects of that role? It is getting better. And I need to acknowledge that when I went through the police service, we're talking about uh, early 2010 through to late 2015, so just shy of six years. And back then, there wasn't uh, a lot of progressive thinking in terms of creating a mentally healthy workplace for first responders. Uh, The training that I received was actually just two days out of my six-month academy course around, you as a copper, you will go to a community presentation where somebody is uh, in need of acute mental health support and you'll need to take them to the hospital and this is how you have these conversations and this is how you provide that support and link in with health services. There was minimal, if any, exposure to you as a police officer will be impacted by what you see and this is where you can turn to for support. So I think for me... I was desperately in need of those supports and I didn't know where to go because that education was not provided. Now in 2022, a lot has changed and a lot has improved. We as an organisation have a standing invitation uh, to go back to the Queensland Police Service right at day dot in the academy and provide some uh, education and upskilling sessions for the recruits and their families. And I am aware that the Queensland Police Service and Queensland Ambulance and Queensland Fire, uh, they've done a lot of work in um, creating mental health strategies, in putting in place uh, leading or best practice programs to support their people. However, more still needs to be done uh, because we can't rest on our laurels and, and stigma still exists in this sector to a very, very high degree. And we know that stigma is a barrier to accessing and seeking good, timely supports. What's the secret around breaking that stigma, you think? It's a multifaceted model to addressing stigma in first responder agencies, but also in workplaces in the community more broadly. We know there is an awareness already out there that people live with mental health conditions. However, in the first responder sector, Uh, There's a great level of perceived organisational stigma, be it, you you know, I I put my hand up for support and and I I say that I'm not travelling well. Well, historically, that has been quite a career-limiting thing to do. There is a lot of work being done to address that at the moment and, and providing uh, high visibility in the, in the workplace to people who have mental health conditions whose careers have not been affected is certainly a way that you can uh, address that level of perceived stigma. The other sort of facet of stigma is self-stigma. So first responders, you know, we all believe that we are six foot tall and bulletproof and, you know, we're strong pillars of the community who, who, who protect and serve, right? And when we come up against the fact that we are vulnerable, we do experience mental health challenges and we do need support, well, that doesn't match up with the image that we hold to be true. 
So there are quite high levels of self-stigma. First responders live with a great deal of shame, a great burden around wanting to solve their problems on their own and fearing that, you know, they would be isolated or shunned by their colleagues and their family. Self-stigma is that fear or inability to uh, reconcile what we think to be true with what we're experiencing in terms of mental health. And we know that gets in the way. So in terms of addressing that, As I mentioned, I think providing high visibility to people's careers who are unaffected, not just the executive, uh, it's all well and and fine for a commissioner to stick his hand up or her hand up and say, I've had mental health issues across my career and look at where I am now. I actually, as a former copper, I want to hear from the senior Connie, the sergeant, the senior sergeant at the the coalface who has experienced trauma, has experienced some really negative stuff and is still with adequate supports and early help seeking, is able to stay employed and do that work well with the right toolkit in place to help them. That's who I want to hear from. Additionally, though, we know that strong leadership can play a role in this in, in, this, in addressing stigma. Yeah. Um, certainly, if a leader is open and vulnerable about their own mental health, well, it really opens doors and paves the ways for, for others to do the same, right? I think uh, one of the final aspects is um, the importance of story sharing. I think being quite open and vulnerable, sharing your story and encouraging others to seek support and normalising mental health, taking the the stigma away, demystifying it and, and sharing that we all have mental health challenges just like we all have physical health challenges, that too can be a way to address stigma. Conversations at the college will be back right after this break. St. Stephen's College ensures every student is challenged and inspired to persevere and create their own future and to be the very best version of themselves that they can be. One of Queensland's most innovative schools, St. Stephen's College is the perfect choice for families wanting the best education for their children in an environment where they'll be cared for and supported as they transition into a new school. St. Stephen's College is a place where you'll feel you genuinely belong. I know from my military days at Anzac Day, you know, we'd march and then we'd head down to the RSL and have a few drinks with the old fellas and, you know, they'd open up and tell us things that they've had bottled up in some cases literally for decades and, you know, things that they wouldn't even tell their own family. So is talking the answer or do you think we need to go a bit deeper than that as well? Mate, it is. It it is. And I think sharing those stories certainly goes a very long way in building a community of support and that is critically important. And full stop. However, I think we need to go deeper. I think we need to encourage people uh, when they do open up to seek support if they need it. And if they don't know where to go, then we jump on websites like Fordham Australia or Beyond Blue or Are You OK? And we look at where to from here after that conversation has been had. I think we also need to, in first responder agencies, promote the soft skills of leaders. In this sector, people are promoted upon technical ability. You know, you can handle a crime scene really well or you can, uh, you know, investigate a a protracted, serious, indictable criminal offence and have a great outcome in a Supreme Court. This is how people get promoted. Nothing is being done, really, to equip middle management and senior leaders with soft skills, how to become a mental health leader. We're not asking uh, leaders or managers to, to be a clinician. Quite the opposite, actually. We're encouraging people to learn about mental health challenges, learn about where to go for their people to get support and learn about how to have that conversation. And I think doing these things and having a mental health and wellbeing strategy and sharing story sharing and and making it okay to talk, all of these things, you put that puzzle together, 
it starts to create a mentally healthy workplace. You know, I remember hearing this absolutely harrowing story about a man who threw his young child off a bridge in Melbourne and that poor paramedic who was the first person on the scene. You know, he had to deal with the carnage and, you know, despite his absolute heroic effort, obviously that baby died from those injuries. So I guess my question is, how do you actually train and can you train somebody to deal with that sort of situation? From an operational perspective, it is possible. We are continually exposed to education, upskilling, reskilling, and uh, and mentoring around how to respond to and contain a critical incident. First responders are the best in our community at doing that. So from a technical perspective, we've got that squared away. From an emotional toll perspective, well, can I say an incident like that? Nothing can truly prepare you for walking into an incident like that. I can imagine. You know, I think every first responder that I know has their own version of an incident like that. And then also years of cumulative exposure to trauma. What I think we can do is we can make available supports and make available the conversation that it's okay to be impacted by this. In fact, it's normal and it is what you would expect. This sort of stuff, there's a moral element to this contravening any sort of values that you hold to be true you know for example children uh, for me a, a child must be loved and nurtured and protected how could somebody throw their child over a bridge yeah. right so there is that element of that just having such a profound shockwave through your psychological and and well-being so it's okay for that to really rock you and it's okay to need support and if you need that support this is where you go but wouldn't it be great if first responders and their families already inherently knew that and they already knew where they could turn to for support and they already had those support mechanisms and their networks of safety established? And that's where we need to pivot to. Do you think um, we're far off getting to that point? Look, I think in terms of workplace mental health more broadly, uh, a lot of investment has happened over the past five to ten years. There's a lot of great research and knowledge translation, so translating that research into tangible practices that has been done. In the first responder sector, uh, we've learned good lessons from other industries and other workplaces, and we've also done a lot of work as a sector to push ourselves forward. But more still needs to be done. Um, there are some agencies in, in Australia where they don't have a formal mental health and wellbeing strategy okay. with good strategic actions and, and I guess executive leaders held to account through that strategy document. There are some agencies that uh, have good programs, but those programs aren't benchmarked against good research, so they're not necessarily sound. And I think we still have a very long way to go I've, I've got colleagues who still continue to be first responders in, in 2022 and they're now in senior leadership positions. They still have a lot of stigma around their own mental health and wellbeing. And they tell me about stories where people still don't feel supported to put their hand up for support. So a lot has been done, a lot of investment, a lot of research. But an organisation like Fordham Australia, we exist to push the sector forward and to provide those supports. Mate, what do you think the best solution is to ensure that we give our first responders the tools that they need to be able to cope with the things that they have to see? And how far away from that point do you think we are at the moment? <sighs> it's, it's a really good question. Uh, I think it harks back to one of my original responses is that um, we need a suite of services. We really, really do internally and externally across the step model of care. So that early intervention 
all the way through to acuity in uh, mental inpatient care in, in hospitals. Uh, and we need everything in between. And uh, there are some really good programs out there. Uh, peer support, for example, in the first responder sector, if peers are adequately recruited, so recruited well with a good strategy around how to do that, if they're adequately trained and they receive good, sound training as a foundation, and there's a framework around developing that peer support program, well, we know that's a really good thing. Same too with a community-based organisation like Fordham Australia. We know that social connection is one of the most powerful things that we as a community can do to look after the mental health and wellbeing of our first responders. So providing that sense of community and connection uh, to something outside of employment and also providing an opportunity for families to come together to build those family bonds, that is highly, highly protective. So I think having that suite of services is critically important. We need agency leaders to own this as well. Uh, there is a du- there's a duality there around an individual has a responsibility to look after their own mental health, but also the workplace has a responsibility to create a mentally health and safe workplace, much like they would a physical workplace. And then finally, I think also government has a, a real role in this space. We will continue to work with government to, and and myself, I'm quite passionate about this, to highlight the need for high value policy reform, to look at things like the high rates of suicide deaths of first responders in Australia, to look at damaging practices like workers' compensation, to look at things like providing support for first responders when they leave their organisation years after. You know, the first responder community doesn't have a a DVA. It doesn't have a, a veteran support agency owned by the government nor possibly will they because of the, the separation of the, the Commonwealth and the states. However, there is a national responsibility from Commonwealth and a state responsibility from the state government to coordinate this at a really high level and to implement it locally. And, uh, you know, that is something that I will continually and passionately advocate for because, to be honest, we all want to see the same things, right? Yeah. We want to see that people's mental health is in check and that's ingrained. And it becomes a really uh, important component of a shift that people have open and honest conversations about their mental health and well-being, and they know where to go to seek support. We want to not to have to experience a suicide death by a team member or a close friend. And we want to see that the act of seeking support, it's actually not the brave thing to do. It's the normal thing to do. It's what we all do. Much like we would, uh, you know, if I... As a, as a relapsed sort of ultra-endurance athlete, if I had a bung knee or a, a twisted ankle, well, I'd go to a physio, an osteo, a chiro, a myo, and I would go get that sorted. The same approach needs to be adopted in terms of mental health and well-being, right? We have mental health like we have physical health, and we want the act of seeking support to be a normal thing to do, much like we would for a physical injury. And I think if we marry all of those things together, then first responders can be well and can continue to do this vital, vital job in the community. And this will continue years after they hang up the uniform into uh, transition and retirement. Does it make it harder? And you, you touched on it earlier in the fact that you've got to do the same thing in each and every single state as opposed to doing it once. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, so eight states and territories, uh, every state and territory will have their own version, different naming conventions of police, fire, ambulance, SES, marine rescue and alike. Uh, so you're looking at the better part of 40, 50 agencies nationwide, all overseen by their own unique state or territory government. 
The reason why Fordham Australia was created is our co-founders and executives hail from Soldier On. They created Soldier On as an organisation. Okay. John Bale, our managing director, and Darren Lincoln and, and Lauren Phillips, they looked at the support that defence veterans were rightly receiving. Absolutely, they are a deserving community that needs that in-depth support. And then they looked at the disparity with what emergency service first responders receive in Australia, or to, to rephrase, that they don't receive. Yeah. And they saw that as an injustice and a community that really needed that support. And Fordham Australia was born out of that. The way that we have approached this is certainly we work with state and territory governments to help them understand their responsibility in this space, to look after their own. But there's also national government uh, sort of departments that play a role in emergency management. And we are working with those, uh, those governments as well. And I think the blueprint, Beyond Blue, in their 2018 national study, really set, set the blueprint out for this. It is a nationally coordinated framework owned by a Commonwealth department, implemented in each state and territory to provide that support locally on the ground. Yeah. And that's, that's certainly the way that I would advocate going forward. And finally, mate, if people are listening to the podcast today and you know know somebody who's struggling or maybe even struggling themselves, how do they contact Fordham and what's the best course of action from there? So Fordham Australia exists for the first responder community and their family. Uh, so if there is a first responder or a family member of a first responder or, dare I say, a, a friend or, or a community member who knows and cares about a first responder that might be impacted by the tolls of the job, then I would absolutely urge them to jump onto Fordham Australia's website. That's fordhamaustralia.org.au. Uh, we've got information about all of our services that we provide. And then we also have a lot of free online resources for this community as well. In terms of the general community, uh, my advice there would be to start with uh, your GP or local healthcare professional. I see a psychologist ongoing. It is part of how I stay well every day and be the best version of myself. And that all started for me through accessing my GP and getting that referral. There are also some really great organisations out there like Beyond Blue and Lifeline that provide really great resources and also crisis support uh, to people in the community who might be needing that extra support. James, thank you so much for being part of Conversations at the College. It's been an absolute privilege to be able to talk to you today. Rick, thank you so much for having me, mate. Thanks for listening to Conversations at the College. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, feel free to reach out through our social media channels. And we look forward to you tuning in to our next conversation.